Looking for even more unique and creative movie content? Become a patron. Choose between three levels and you'll get benefits like a personalized membership card, exclusive shows, early instant reactions to new releases, episode voting power, live streams, and more. Join today. Patreon.com slash binge movies. Coming to you from the last video store in the universe, it's Binge Movies, episode 125. I'm Jason. This is the show that ranks and eliminates movies to determine which ones are worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, we rank a king. This week, I am joined by someone who normally watches a thing, but this week, we're going to watch some King. Rather, we watched some King, past tense. <laughs> I'm talking about the little boy that lives in my mouth. I'm talking about the first respectable Australian I've ever had on this podcast. I prefer my Australian cities to not sound like speech impediments, if you know what I mean. I am here with B Dizzle. How you doing? Mate, I'm excellent. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to uh to talk to our friend Paul about that intro just there. Who? Paul from the countdown. Never heard of him. <laughs> L- let me ask you this. Um I'm going to say something to you. Mm-hmm. And I want you to tell me whether or not you understand what I'm saying to you, okay? Okay. <laughs> okay, here we go. <clears throat> <laughs> I got the giggles. <clears throat> Razor blades. Razor blades, mate. <laughs> you use them to shave. You use them to shave your face. <laughs> I'm gonna do it one more. I'm gonna do it one more time. All right. Razor blades. Razor blades. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm saying is, rise up, lights. I, I'm just hearing razor blades. <laughs> It was a test to see to check my how you would hear it. Yeah. yeah. And you heard razor Wait, blades. were you actually saying rise up lights? Really? Rise up lights. Oh, my God. No, mate. <laughs> rise up lights. Mate, see? You, you do a great Aussie accent. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no. So the secret is that somebody else told me this. This is a shout out to the Lady Juan. She's the one that turned me on to this fellow podcaster. She's got her own show. Screen Run. Check it out. But she was like the only, the only, the the surefire way for a Yankee, for an American, for a dumb, ugly American <laughs> to sound like a sophisticated Australian is to say that the three words rise up lights in a, just say as you would a normal sentence. So I'm not affecting an Australian accent. Right. In an Amer- my native accent, I'm just saying rise up lights. <laughs> It, it's uncanny. It is literally it's uncanny. <laughs> it, it is. That, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if there's an equivalent three words oh. that we could put together that all of a sudden B Dizzle <laughs> is going to sound like he's from Saskatchewan or something or from like Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I'm not sure, but uh, I like to find what that is. Yeah, I'm so going to have tra- to do some I research. I will say this. Yeah, I will say this. Of all of the Australian voices that I have had the pleasure of listening to, 
Uh, yours is quite melodious. Oh, I, I love your voice, that. man. <laughs> yeah, it's so soothing. Like you, or I don't know. I know you work in VFX and and film stuff. Have you have you ever thought about being a therapist or <laughs> a, like a elementary art teacher or something? You have just such a like a mellow. Uh, even when you're like don't like a movie, you're just so tranquil about it. And not boring. I'm not saying boring. You're soothing. Have you ever thought about I that? I appreciate that. I have done some voiceover work before. I was doing an animation once and I just used my voice as a little filler to time it before yeah. I got a professional one. And the client was like, oh, yeah, we really like that voice. Y- yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's not an F. You're not putting it on. We talked a little bit before nah. this. Uh, you told me that the pod- binge movies is too long for you to listen to. So <laughs> oh, you have no, 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 no. You don't even know who I am or why you're here, but... I know why you're here. You're here because you are arguably one of the most popular independent Australian podcasters oh, of all that's time. Incredibly kind of you to say. It's I true. Think I'm here because you because know it's I was true. very. You know what your I numbers. was telling you is <laughs> what I was telling you is I don't do a lot of guest spots and 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 I was very excited to do this one though. I like this is my first guest spot at least since my co-host left. Yeah, and even then we had stopped doing guest spots for probably about a year or two before that. So. I'm I'm excited, man. This is this is fun and one of my favorite topics. When you reached out to me and said, "I've," because I think you said you had King and I don't want to spoil anything, but Tom Hanks. Yeah, and I famously hate Tom Hanks. Yes, so, <laughs> but I love Stephen King, so I'm excited for this. Well, let's get into that for a second, okay? Um, Stephen King, right? Obviously, a prolific author, terrible filmmaker has had many <laughs> terrible film adaptations. We're not doing the yeah. bad ones. We're doing mm-hmm. the good ones. These are all... According, according yeah. to critics. According <laughs> to critics, yeah. These are all the good ones, and which makes this kind of a little bit extra challenging, right? Because if, if we had more of his filmography in here, well, it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe this one's like a guilty pleasure, or I kind of like this, or I saw it as a kid, it left an impact on me. Yeah. Or, and you know, this one's absolutely terrible or whatever, you know, uh, maximum overdrive. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, this, it would be like a little bit easier because you could diversify, you could spread these out. Yeah. We're not just going to be reviewing them, we're ranking them, right? Mm-hmm. So as we go through these chronologically, we'll be ranking them. And the fact that they're all kind of, uh, they're within proximity of each other, uh, yeah. at least four of the five of them, um, it's going to be more challenging. So, what what's your history with, King adaptations and what's your history with the man, the author, Stephen King? So I'm a massive fan of Stephen King. I've spoken about on the show before my kind of relationship with horror and stuff. I, I grew up like my mom was a massive horror fan. So I grew up watching horrors really young. It was no different with reading. Uh, my aunties were prolific readers. And when I was about eight or nine, they just lent me a whole bunch of King books, which I know I, it sounds like I'm a bit young for that, but um, <laughs> but I just devoured them. I, I love his writing. And mm. I think I agree with you. A lot of the adaptations have not worked well. And I think that's because what King is so great at is detail, especially mm-hmm. character detail. Yeah. Like, if you've read some of his best books like it or the stand or even I love some that aren't that popular, like needful things Mm -hmm. where his bread and butter is just delving into characters. And I, I truly believe that he doesn't plot out a story before he starts. I think he starts with the characters and he lets them form the story. And that's where his his real strength is. 
Yeah, his writing definitely has that feeling. Yeah. And his better works, uh, I you know, I took a beach trip a few years ago, obviously a few years ago. Yeah. And uh and I it took I, I I took along the stand. My dad was a mm. huge Stephen King fan, and all the way you know to some of the later works that aren't that great. Um, and you know, really loved the Dark Tower series, this that whatever. Yeah. And so he he had passed away, and it had been a couple of years, and I was going to go on a trip, and I I just kind of wanted to do something. You know, I wanted to explore something that I never had really explored before. Almost like I was traveling down a similar road that my dad had gone down by reading this book. If that makes any sense, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Yep. And I devout, I mean, I, I got the unabridged stand, so it's got the yeah. extra stuff, right? Yeah. And that's a long book in general. The unabridged versions even longer. I want to say it's around like 15, 1800 pages, something like yeah. that. And I read the entire thing cover to cover, almost like, like on a, like a six day vacation. And I came home and finished it like the day after I came home from a vacation. Yeah, I just laid on the beach, got roasted like a lobster. Uh, <laughs> probably took several years off of my life. And I just and I was engrossed, especially up into a certain point. Uh, once they start getting into the uh, recordings of the different town hall meetings they have, yep. and you're just reading like minutes, meeting minutes. Yeah, I was like, yep. okay, we've we, once we get to the free zone, it kind of stalls out a little bit, and then of course it picks up a little bit. But the first. I don't know. I you know, I'd have to say like roughly half of that book. I mean, it's a thick book. It's a page turner, but it yeah. feels like the world that he's building yeah. is unfolding as he's writing it. It's like he's he's building it as we go, but it also feels at the same time so rich with detail and character detail, like you said, and and the psychological detail of his characters. He really yes. gets into yep. the soul and the mind of his characters. And to your point, I think that's extraordinarily difficult to translate. Yeah, and that that's one of the things I found hardest with this binge is, as you say, ranking them. It was really hard for me to approach these almost as their own entities. Yeah. Because for yeah. most of these, I have read and, and loved the books. And I found it really hard to separate and go, I mean, of course, they're not as good as the books. Like, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, some of these are getting very close to as good, if not maybe one of them is better than the source material. Mm. But for most of them, that's so hard to get across. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think what's really hard too, is we think of him as a horror author. Yeah. Obviously two of these on here are not scary movies per se. Yeah. They're from shorter stories or novellas or short mm -hmm. novels that he's done. And, um, you know, he's written a lot of different stuff and, when he does get into the spooky and the scary and stuff like that, a lot of it's existential. Yes. A lot of it is yeah. psychological. And what is psychologically horrifying when you're reading a book mm -hmm. or you're listening to even an audio book is, does not necessarily translate to a visual medium. Yeah. So there's always this thing that in the adaptation, especially of his, his more uh, horror-based works, that in the adaptation, once we go visual, it can get kind of goofy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can get yeah. kind of silly. And that that's always the risk you run with King. And the thing is, it, so that tone is even sometimes present in his actual writing, too. There mm -hmm. is a little bit of like a weird subversive humor to his writing as well. Yeah. And so I think he's just a very, for lack of a better term, like idiosyncratic author. I think he's just very, very difficult to translate to the screen. 
Yeah, true. I, I always found it interesting that he has been classed as a horror writer. And I get that because a lot of his books do have horror elements to them. Yeah. But for example, even it, like there are large chunks of it that are closer to Stand By Me than they right. are to yeah. any of his other kind of straight horror novels. Like, And I think that that kind of, that character and that feeling of nostalgia is something he does incredibly well. And I think that it's kind of just, you know, Carrie was his first published novel, which obviously is much more of a straight horror. And so he just yeah. kind of got pegged as that. And people do kind of, I think, have a tendency to forget that he is prolific. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you brought it up. So I think I'm looking at my watch. I think it's about that time. I think it's time we get to our first film. Of course, we're talking about 1976's Carrie, which currently has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. A new film by Brian De Palma. Starring Sissy Spacek, Piper Laurie, and John Travolta in his first motion picture role. If you have a taste for terror, you have a date with Carrie. Rated R. Carrie was directed by pervert Brian De Palma with the screenplay by Lawrence D. Cohen. It's based on Carrie by Stephen King. It is the triumphant return of Nancy Allen last seen in RoboCop. It's the triumphant return of Edie McClung last seen in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And it is the triumphant return of PJ Souls last seen in Halloween. This film was released November 3rd, 1976 on a budget of $1.8 million. It made $33.8 million in the United States and Canada. Exvangelical gets the ultimate revenge on purity culture by kissing, dating, hello, and psychically destroying her high school. A teenage girl who is psychologically tortured by her mother and classmates discovers that she has psychic abilities and uses them to enact her revenge. Okay, this is a film, my friend, that I... Just the first time I watched it, it didn't work for me. Yeah. I didn't. It just, there was something I think about the gauzy almost aesthetic of it. It's visually at times very gauzy, very, very blurred, very blown out. It's, it feels very 70s. Oh, yeah. This is a movie that feels 76. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like 100%. And not like gritty, grimy 70s, just like 70s, 70s. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, maybe being a little bit younger and being a little bit dumber when it comes to movies. It just didn't really work for me. I, you know, there, it also had been hyped up a little bit. It's all Carrie, 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 Carrie. Just the name Carrie is one of those things, at least stateside, that worked itself into the zeitgeist. And so yeah. it was just one of those, you just knew what it was. It meant somebody going crazy, right? Mm, yeah. And psychically, you know. Uh, and so I was like, I watched it and it just didn't really work for me. I revisited it and it worked a little better. I don't know what it is about this time. When I watched it this time, I thought this movie was fantastic. Right. And the only thing that I can say <laughs> I, that I think informed this was I watched uh, a few years ago, I watched Badlands for the first time. Yeah. The, 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 the Terrence Malick, uh, Sissy Spacek, uh, and uh, Martin Sheen film, right? It's a, kind of a precursor to Natural Born Killers in, in a weird Terrence Malick sort of way. Yeah. And... She's not playing that character at all, but in this movie. But I saw something in Spacek that I never saw in her before I watched Badlands. Yeah. 
And then I realized just what a great actress she is. And also that there, that she has this sort of unconventional appeal, yeah. even sex appeal to her. Yep. yep. That the, the, the people who were filming her and shooting her and her herself in her performance are much more mindful of. And I didn't get it. It didn't unlock for me until Badlands where I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> Sissy Spacek is kind of an unconventional sex symbol in a weird way. Yeah. She's a taboo. She's this like nymphette. It's really how she kind of presents herself. And because she was, you know, 27 or 28 when she did this movie and she looks 15. She looks. Yeah, she does. Yeah. She looks like a high schooler. And, and so it's like when the movie opens with the long gauzy shower scene <laughs> yeah. of her sensually massaging her own body. I was like, well, first of all, I was like, this is definitely opening your movie with full frontal nudity yes. in slow motion. Yes. Of what is supposed to be school girls. <laughs> yeah. Of what are supposed to be high school girls. Yeah. Is the most De Palma way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but what I realized, right, is that it's not just Brian De Palma being a pervert, although he is. It is the, the sensuality of that shower scene then transforming into her first menstruation, yeah, first yeah. period. And her horror at that is absolute classic horror sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's also classic De Palma and kind of classic King. This weird mixture of coming of age, mm -hmm. which is a theme that runs through almost all of his work, yeah. right? Somebody somewhere, but coming of age. And then it's almost as if, and, and it, like, this is where it works so well. Uh, I think why I appreciate this movie was it's almost as if in that scene, she's discovering her body for the first time. Yeah. And it's like her sexual awakening actually causes her puberty in a way or her first period, uh, which, you know, I, that timetable is a little screwy, but, it, but what it does is it latches though. It latches her sexuality with the horrific. Yeah. Yeah, which again is something King often plays with and does well. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it is easy to think of that opening scene as not having a purpose. It, it is easy to watch it and just go, "Wow, we're opening with five minutes slow mo of you know teenage girls and the." But I agree with you. It it really does play into those later themes and stuff. I almost had the opposite thing to you though, where hmm. like I said, I I grew up with a lot of horror. From my memory, this was one of the first ones that I'd seen. And and mm. I loved this film, and I had the same experience the other night when I rewatched the Amityville Horror for the first time in a long time, and I was like, "Wow, this movie oh, yeah. is not as yeah. not anywhere near as good as I thought it was." And I still enjoyed Carrie, and there's still a lot of things that I like about it. And like you say, I think SpaceX is she's brilliant in this film. She carries yes. it, and for me, is the reason to watch this film. But I didn't love this film as much as I'd remembered, and it's hmm. certainly not. If if you're like around our age or, you know, someone who didn't grow up watching 70s horror, I can't say I'd recommend this to somebody because I, I think it would turn them off that kind of era of horror films because it is incredibly dated today, which, you know, you have to separate because you can't you can't look at every film through the lens of the time you're watching it because that's not when it was yes. made. But it, right. it, there are elements of this film that are so dated now that it's it it almost becomes a little hard to watch at times because it comes across more funny than scary for me. 
I didn't interpret it as necessarily being scary. Yeah. Right. I, what I think what stood out to me more was, were the themes. Yeah. Again, like this association between sexual awakening and blood, you know, and, and which equal guilt and shame. And then guilt and shame is obviously the influence of the mother figure. Yeah. But also like her attraction to this man leads to the people pouring the blood on her. So again, it bookends the movie, right? There's yeah. sexual sensuality that leads to blood, right? And then the mocking and the trauma of bullying and so forth. But then it also, we cycle back to it with this moment that she has with her date, which is friendly, uh, but also like she's, she kind of puts her foot down with her mom and she asserts her power. And no, I would basically, I want to be a normal kid. I want to be like a, sexual being for lack of a better term and then the blood happening again and that being the thing that unleash unleashes like the death yeah and the and that like i thought all of those themes were strung together so beautifully in this movie that i thought the visual elements the story elements and the character development all the way across the board just was done so masterfully um i think you know this has some king tropes in it of course yeah one of which, of course, is he always has a, he's got a hard on for kind of t- taking the piss out of religious figures. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're always mad zealots or like corrupt, hypocritical, institutional leaders, yeah. abusers, devils in disguise, sometimes literally the devil in disguise yeah. or frauds or something like that. And so here we have this extremely zealous mother figure played by Piper Laurie, mm. who I think is like bordering on parody. She's so over the top yeah. in the way she's doing yeah. it. But I thought it worked. I thought that performance really worked because she's over the top, but in a way that like like old time religious zealots are kind of over the top. Yeah, that's people fair. who are yeah. Religious zealots. I mean, to be a zealot literally means yeah. so you're you're known for your zeal. Yeah. So you're known for being over the top. And I, I think that this movie also very subtly contains one of my all-time like the greatest horror twists that always works for me. It pushes my buttons here. And it's that when the antagonist isn't exactly right, but they're not wrong either. Yeah. Right. And like the thing that's subversive about this is Piper Laurie is crazy and she's dealing with her own guilt, her own guilt due to sexual trauma, being raped and marital rape and all these sort of things and her previous lifestyle. And she's, you know, like taking on this religion to cope with all of that. But the, the great thing about her is when she's like, like this power isn't for good and it's going to lead, they'll laugh at you and it's going to lead to destruction and da, 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 da. And you dismiss out of hand because it again, <laughs> sounds like the ravings of a religious lunatic yeah. who's crazy about everything, but she's not wrong about this. And in fact, Carrie's powers may actually be from the devil in a way. Yeah. Like it may not be, it may be a natural phenomenon, or it may be of the devil, but the movie does such a good job of getting us on Carrie's side. We never question for a second, even though by this point we know the ending. Yeah. We never question for a second that she's actually of the devil. Yep. Even though we know she's psychic. Like, and, and, and even though her psychic abilities 
are only shown as being destructive. Yeah. 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 Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. That That is one thing that the film does really nicely, which again, I think goes back to King's writing is that it feels believable from start to finish that like, you don't even question it. This is just a girl with psychic abilities. You don't actually, yeah. it, you, it almost doesn't even cross your mind where they came from. <laughs> like it's just, because it just feels so real that she has them. <laughs> I think what it's pulling on is this there, you know, at least in the States, again, there was this rise, rise in alternative religions within the late mid to late sixties, but that led to like the resurgence of spiritualism and the yep. new age movement and personal development and a lot of pseudoscience in the seventies. And so I think like in the cultural moment, um, the reason why it's effective is because people were just sort of more open to these ideas that psychic phenomena was real or parapsychological stuff was real. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was, it was just sort of, it was beginning to be mainstreamed as something that was possible. And a lot of research was be, actual legitimate research was being done in those fields at this time. What's more amazing about it, though is as dated as obviously the fashion is and even some of the direction is we're not in that moment anymore. Yeah. We're in the moment. We're not in the, mo I mean, in a way, you know, fringe ideas have never been, never more popular, but at the same time they're popular, but also still fringe. Yes. We look yep. at them derisively. And yet in this movie, it still kind of freaking works that, yeah, she goes to the library, she reads a book <laughs> and she's like, Mama, some people got psychic powers. <laughs> and, we're, and we're just like, yeah, some people just have psychic powers. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it's, it, I know I'm sort of running at the mouth about this movie, but again, like re rewatching it for this episode was the first time, like it kind of clicked for me. I'm like, Oh, this is a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily scary, but a, but a good movie. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely still enjoy it. And while some elements are dated, there are some things that really still hold up tremendously. Well, like you said, I think the screenplay and the narrative is timeless and it is such a part of the zeitgeist. If you say the word carry to somebody, even if they know nothing about this story, have never heard of this film, I think they still picture the prom scene because yeah. it's just so iconic and ingrained. And I got to say, like, that that blood and everything, like, the effects in this film hold up incredibly well for a film that is from 1976. Yeah, I think that they, they obviously, a lot is done in camera. Yeah. And, and a lot was done, like, when it, when it has to be, and I mean, I can defer to you on this. When an effect has to be done in camera, it has to mostly be able to pass in camera, you know, uh, you, you, and, and it's not the same as doing it, you know, after the fact and then doing a composite shot or yeah. something like that. And you can kind of fudge the details. It's like, it has to pass the lens test. Yeah. And the fact that these are, you know, practical effects done in camera. Yeah. Uh, I think almost all of them, if not all of them. Yeah. Yeah. They pass, they pass the lens test, even, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later almost. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's even simple things just like the blood. You know, like you watch a lot of old movies yeah. and fake blood yeah. stands out really, really strong. I think yeah. this, for me, is the first film that I can really remember the blood looking that realistic. And, you know, like people think of the, the prom scene, the blood in that scene, but even that opening scene where she first menstruates, that, that looks like real blood that is incredibly detailed it's very uh, yeah it, that whole scene is very effective because yeah, of the definitely like, it the the hyper reality and then also just reality reality somehow mm -hmm. 
And, and when De Palma was on the top of his game, which arguably he is here. Yeah. It, he has that ability to make these like high, like hyper real sort of movies. And obviously some of that is him aping Hitchcock. And, but it's, it's the same sort of Hitchcockian effect where it's like hyper real and certain things or certain shots or certain reactions are very odd, like out, out beyond the scope of like movies that, that are just like that. You know, I think I was, I think of the detective, you know, falling down the staircase yeah. in Psycho, the surrealness of just how that was shot or even the dolly zoom yeah. Hitchcock helped make famous. Uh, it's like, whoa, it's just such a weird, like hyper real effect and or hyper real performance note or something. But then it's also grounded in the, like the real world. Yeah. And I think De Palma at his best is doing that and he's doing that here. Yeah. Where it feels like she's really a like as kind of weird as this is to say like she it feels like she really is a teenage girl undergoing yeah her you know her period for the first time and then is like horrifically traumatized by it yeah yeah and what makes that moment work so well as well is just that kind of typical horror trope but done so well here where you completely juxtapose a moment like you said like the film opens with it's like really soft quiet music and you know she's just rubbing her body and then all of a sudden she's screaming and losing it frantically and it just it works so well because you feel so bad for this girl and as over the top as that moment can be seen today like i do think if you watch this movie through that through the the modern lens the performance is over the top for sure and not just her the other girls in the the classroom like i oh, yeah. i like to yeah. think that that's not a moment that would happen in today's time but i'm probably wrong bullying is still very much alive and well yeah but yeah, yeah it's 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 a very effective moment in this film you know you t- you mentioned the juxtaposition or sort of the the book ending of it you know she's running begging for help mm as blood is all over the place and she's scared and doesn't know what's happening. And she thinks something horrifically unnatural is happening because of this sheltered fundamentalist religious upbringing that she has. She's never been told at all about it, her body or, or, you know, human development or sexuality or anything, anything, all that's dirty. All that's bad. All that is sin. And so she's like almost, she's someone who's, ironically again here we go with the themes she's somebody who is starts the movie almost detached from her own body and it's almost like her psychic abilities have developed because her mind is so gnostically divorced from her physical self like i know that's weird (laughs) but thematically there's something psychologically there where she's she was disconnected from her own gender to the point that yeah. as a 15, 16-year-old girl or however old she is in this, she doesn't know what a period is. Yeah, yeah. It's not, that it's not, it's not just that she's never had one. Yeah, she, she doesn't know what it is. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so it's like you put somebody on that much, you divorce somebody that much from their own like incarnate state and what's going to happen. It leaves room for something disincarnate to enter the fray, which, you know, we don't know what that is in her case, but there's something else beyond the body that's going on here. Juxtapose that to the end, she's covered in blood again, but rather than running for help to these people who mocked her, the the people who mocked her are running for help. And it's, and there's been an awakening with her. That's not a natural occurrence. Yeah. 
It's an unnatural or supernatural occurrence. And it all ends with them running and fleeing from her. And that, that whole thing is, is that whole prom sequence is iconic for so many different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I loved about this time round was, um, before the melee, it's just a prom. Yeah. Yeah. De- <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Even like the Nancy Allen shenanigans, you know, the pig's blood and all that. Like we cut to that sparingly. Yeah. So it's just, there's long minutes of just them are like basically her date learning to see her as a person. Yeah. And not necessarily being romantically interested in her, but just really finding himself enjoying her company yeah, and enjoying he her as a person. And like, <laughs> which, which he didn't expect to. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, it just plays so wonderfully, which is a great setup because that's what we need for the gut punch yes. at the end. Yeah. We need everything not to be going like, oh, like a fairy tale. We need everything to be going like almost grounded, normal. Mm-hmm. The, the conversation at the table seems kind of naturalistic. The way they are talking to each other, the way, yeah. you know, yeah. it's just, it feels very much like, oh, this is like uh, just a good time at the prom. Yeah. And then we, en- we enter into once, once the gut punch happens, that's when we enter the dreamlike state. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like at the at the peak of her fantasy as we enter the dream state, the peak of her, they get the award, yep. and it goes all like homecoming king. And that's when it gets surreal, like, oh, it's so wonderful. And then when that turn happens and it goes from dream to nightmare, yep. and then her nightmare and how she feels about herself yeah. manifest in the room and becomes their nightmare. And they notice something this time, and I'll, I'll, I'll cut back to you. I noticed something this time. The laughing that she hears from people yeah. only occurs in that surreal state. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, what she, one of the people she sees up front is the teacher laughing at her, Miss Collins. Yeah. But if you look at the scene before we get to the dreamlike state, Miss Collins is leading Nancy Allen's character and PJ Soul's character out of the uh, uh, out of the gymnasium. Yeah. She's not even in the room when the pig's blood drops. Yeah. So. Now I'm wondering, and maybe I'm just dumb and I'm coming late to the ball game, but is is that laughter only in her mind? Yeah, well, that's definitely the way I've always read it. That's definitely the way mm. that I, I feel it happens is that that is, I think most of the people in that crowd would just be shocked silent. I don't think anybody would actually be laughing at that moment. And I do think- Yeah, that, especially- be, yeah. 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 Yeah, they're legit homecoming king. Yeah is laying there bleeding to death exactly. or is dead yeah. on, the, on yeah. the ground. And <laughs> this girl who, you know, halfway through the night, the, the whole, that's the other thing. Like when she does show up and she is able to, she's blossomed and she's just her normal, yeah. wonderful self. Yeah. Uh, other than a couple of the assholes, the rest of the school is pretty inviting. Of her. Well, like, oh. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I definitely yeah. think that the laughter is fake. And I think that's one of those, again, the, those kind of themes that come out even really subtly. Like we've all had that moment where you think, oh, everybody's talking about me. You know, like I, I yeah. used, you know, I used to be afraid of things like eating at a restaurant alone or something until someone said yeah. to me, mate, nobody's looking at you. <laughs> like, no, nobody cares. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of the feeling I get from this film is that that laughter we're seeing, that is, that's all internal. That's the way that she fears that people feel about her, even though most people are probably just don't really think about her. Like, right. 
And that, I think you said it really well before. I think what makes that whole prom scene work so well is that it's so grounded, but when you remember that for her character, what seems grounded to us is a fantasy, like just going Mm. to a normal prom and things going fine, that's already beyond her expectations and what she would dream. That's that's a great point. So then when you go from that to, as you say, the, the real fantasy stuff, she's, she's prom queen. And then the bucket hits and everything. It's like, that is such a heightened state for Carrie that, yeah, that moment just becomes so strong. And so when it flips, then it flips that strong, Mm. but for the negative. Yeah, exactly. And that's almost like, I mean, it is, it's literally the voice of her mother. What I found interesting about the way that segment plays out though, is the editing. Because in a modern movie, mm-hmm. and I would just use this word as well, a dumber movie, <laughs> yeah. they would cut back and forth between what's happening in the real world. Yeah. And then we'd, we'd be jumping back from the natural prom to the heightened state prom at least a couple times to be like, this is the, in the audience. This is in her mind. Yeah. This is in the audience. This is in her mind. And I think what's interesting is this is not a like sharply edited, like very like you know, zip, 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 zip sort of paced film. What's interesting is when that moment happens and we're in that surreal like state, the, the edit is done in such a way as to leave it ambiguous. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden now we're cutting stuff out and you're not sure what's happening, what's not happening. And before you know it, bam, you know, this, everything turns into an EC horror comic. Yeah. And we're getting splash panels basically of, which he used a couple of times, but it goes nuts here in this movie. And then it's just like, we, we, we've truly gone comic book at that point. Yeah. 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 It, it gives a real kind of frantic feeling to that, to that prom scene as it would be like, yeah. if, if you're in that audience, you would be frantic is the only word for it. And that's, I think you're right. The kind of under editing there is a technique that is just so rarely used because most people to give that kind of frantic feeling would be just cut, 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 cut. <laughs> Right. And, and this film almost takes the opposite approach. Yeah. Yeah. Once, once, once we cross that threshold and everything starts to, to break loose, once that, like that ambiguous moment of, well, this seems like it's in her head and, but they're not like overtly telling us, oh, it's in her head. And then when it really, you know, all begins to break loose is like we're at times we're seeing the whole frame, mm. uh, you know, at a time. And then also these pockets of close up frames of different things. But like, it's just, it's such an interesting stylistic choice because it seemingly like comes out of nowhere. But I think it goes back to what you and I were just talking about, which is that it's that heightened fantasy turns into that heightened nightmare. Yeah. And it heightens almost to the point of stylistically changing the frame. Does that make any sense? Yeah. It yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we've spun, we've, we've gone so high up and so deep down and into so much darkness with Carrie. It's almost like her own psyche when it breaks, yeah. like it breaks the reality of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're in a comic book. Yeah. I like or that. Horror. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> But that's not something I noticed the first couple times <laughs> I watched it. So I know I'm babbling about the movie, but it's, it, you know, we, you know I presume anyone that listens to Billy and Jason talk for 40 minutes about <laughs> Carrie is on board with being a big time movie lover. Yeah. 
as movie lovers, part of our experience is that the movies change with us uh, as definitely. we change. Yeah. So what do you think's changed in you that this, as I just go rogue with this, how much I love this movie. Yeah. You're, you're like, ah, it's good, <laughs> but it's, it's not what I remembered it to be. What do you think's I, changed? I think for me, it's just having watched a lot more movies. Like mm. I famously on our show, I get shat on a lot because our very first episode was on 2017's Justice League and I gave it a seven out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> because my thing is I just fucking love movies, you know, as I'm sure you can appreciate. I just, I have such a good time with movies that for a long time, even movies that I disliked, I'd still be like, it's a six or a seven, you know, <laughs> like it's because I just, I, I love the act of watching a movie. I get so much enjoyment out of it that even if a movie was bad, I, was, I just didn't care. And I, like I said, I don't think this movie's bad by any stretch. And I, I, not to, I don't want to jump ahead on, you know, like the structure of your show and give my score now or anything, but it's a, it's a good score still. But, you know, in my head, I was like a 10 on this. And this isn't the only film on this list where this has happened, where I, I was really, really high. And then on this rewatch, I've gone, you know what? There are some things that now that I'm more comfortable critiquing film I think don't work so well and it is a shame that I think for this film a lot of that comes down to things that are now dated I don't love John Travolta in the film yeah um and firstly he just gives Billy's a bad name which is just something I don't like (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah I still really like the film but I just think I've 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 learned more to approach film in a bit of a different way and rather Mm. than just how much did i enjoy this film you know like i think this is this is one of you know this was king's first book i i don't think he'd really hit those highs of um really delving into a character yet and so i do think that a lot of the characters in this film aren't as fleshed out as they would be in some of his later works you know like carrie and her mother are very well established um like Chris and Billy, for example, they're kind of characters that in a later King work would really be delved into still. Like they'd probably have whole chapters just focusing on them and their inner workings. And I think in this film, some of those characters, you know, like they're just kind of teen bullies and that's, it's very two dimensional. And well, yeah, even on, you know, William Katz side of things and it's, him and his girlfriend are also like, we have a whole scene with them and Miss Collins and she's like yelling at them and like, I know what you're doing. And they're like, Oh, we're not doing that. And he's kind of laughing. And you know, and it's like, what exactly are we to make of their motivation? Exactly. Because it's not as yeah. if the movie leaves it ambiguous because because part of me was like, okay, is what they're going for ambiguity because we know the end's going to be tragic. So it's ambiguity. Were they really kind the whole time? Yeah. Or, or were they trying to make it up to her because this girl felt guilty for bullying her or was it really there? There is just another form of bullying. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not how the movie plays out. There's no ambiguity. Exactly. Yeah. Because when, when the pig's blood is being set up and Travolta and his goons are going to go, Slice the, we see who does it. We see who's doing the praying. Yeah. So what we're left with is, yeah, kind of this one dimensionality with both the, the, the villains and I guess the, 
protagonist uh, if, outside of Carrie. Yeah, so, yeah. And yeah, so I think that is a flaw. And so yeah. I think for me, it's things like that that I've just learned to look for better in film. And so I still, I mean, there's only one film out of these five that I was actively not looking forward to rewatching. I'd seen all five of these before. There was only one film I wasn't looking forward to. And you might know yeah. what it is. You might not. I guess we'll get there. But um, so I still had a hell of a good time with this film. That's for sure. Let me finish with this question. So at the end of the film, the mother is dying. Yep. But she seems to be experiencing either religious ecstasy or an orgasm. Yeah. Oh. And I recognize that in, that historically those two are not as, like, you can't differentiate them yeah. based on the literature. <laughs> but she is orgasming seemingly. Yeah. She's crying out in ecstasy as she's being martyred. That's the parallel. Yeah. Um, and yet, so then what happens is... Okay, we think the mother is the antagonist or a antagonist, and she dies. So we've killed the monster. Yeah. But then there's the collapse of the house, which I've always just interpreted as psychic powers were in a monk. Yeah. The guilt of losing this person that even though it's her abuser, she's codependent upon, is too much for her to bear. And it just brings that literally the house coming down upon her. Yeah. When I watched it this time, I'm like, you could interpret that almost as the wrath of God. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and, and that God, like, <laughs> this is, that, that, that Carrie is, as a, is a woman, and she's a woman at odds with her creator because she has this unnatural ability. And you could see, like, in De Palma's mind, and you could see, even in Stephen King's mind, yeah. that, the God of this world would be that twisted as to like be against the side of a young traumatized girl. Does that make, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it does. Yeah. You can definitely see King siding with a boy like that for sure. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe I, maybe I was just like read way too much into it. And I might, because I'm not saying that's what I think happened, but this time I'm sort of like the way it, it, it cuts back and forth between the religious iconography. Yeah. And the house collapsing, it almost seems like the judgment of God or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, and there. Well, I guess there are multiple ways you could read that. You could also flip that and say, well, that's the house was almost Carrie's prison cell, and so the destruction of it. That's that's God freeing her. That's God saying, "Here you go. You're you're done. You're free of your mother. You're free of this house and this life." And yeah, I guess. But that, he yeah. kills her in the process. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you know. <laughs> emotionally and spiritually free, I guess. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Right. That's an interesting one. Yeah. So then I, I just, I want to know what do we make of the fact that the movie ends with Sue being traumatized? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or dealing or, or at the very least dealing or with the, or ex- continuing to experience the trauma she's already experienced because like the mom's on the phone is like, Oh, we'll take her to, we'll just move. And some doctor said that they'll, they forget about experiences like this. And I'm thinking she's going to forget about all of her friends and, yeah. <laughs> and our entire high school yeah. being psychically butchered <laughs> at their prom. I don't think so. Mom. Yeah. But what we're left is we're just left with her screaming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, that's one of those things where that's just kind of, 
a cool horror moment more than anything you're meant to read into. To, and to me, that's one mm. of those things that I think on the, this rewatch lessened the film a little bit for me is it's just kind mm. of like, yeah, that's how you end a horror film. Yeah, you have to end a horror <laughs> film on a note like that. <laughs> you know, half the time a moment like that sets up for the sequel where you're like, oh, no, the bad guy's still out there. Like, <laughs> and I'm sure that, right. I'm sure that's me being a pessimist and there is more to it than that. But um because, yeah, the, there, like no, you say, there, there's not, no there amb- might not be, though. Yeah. yeah there might not be. Because <laughs> as you say, at the end of the day in this film, there's no ambiguity. Sue is not a bad person. She was genuinely trying to help Carrie. So for us to end that, on that's her being traumatized by it is a bit like, well, geez, is the message don't help people? <laughs> <laughs> that's, what I, see, that's what I'm trying to get at, right? Yeah. Is like, I guess what I'm asking you is what do you think the message of Carrie is because obviously you could read it as an anti-bullying film or this, or, but but what, what, what do you think? Or let let me put you like this in this adaptation of King. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you think De Palma and the writer want us to gather from that to walk away from at the end of the movie? That is a really, really, really interesting question because I do think that there are a large number of movies where sadly, I don't think the writers have thought about what the end message is. I think that there's a lot of times where people just have a story to tell, for example, without it always being like a teaching moment, for example, or something. I think there's so many ways you can interpret this film based on your own experience, like anti-bullying, obviously. Mm. I mean, honestly, anti-religion, I think. like, and. Yeah, I don't know. That's a really, really hard question. Do you have an answer for it? I I don't. But to go back to your point, like the whole like the judgment of God sort of showing up and God being kind of the ultimate villain of the movie. Yeah. Um. I, that's why I sort of read it. It was like maybe maybe because the mom's so over the top and all of the religious aspects of it are, are evil, just flat out evil. Yeah. Like maybe like we are to believe that like here's Carrie who really is almost like, yeah, she's killed all these people, but did she do it maliciously? Like what? Yeah. And yet her end is death. And then the one survivor of the entire catastrophe, who's arguably the one person in the movie who did. Yes. She was a part of the bullying, but atone for her sins throughout the film is the one that's punished. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I was like, is this like, because it could be per- interpreted as anti-religion or anti-fundamentalism at the least, is that what we're supposed to be like? Is that is that the message is like, this God is ugly to women. <laughs> <laughs> or am I, is that is that my 21st century brain I, uh, interpreting in 2022? I think, and I'm probably leaning too much on my knowledge of King rather than the adaptation itself here. One thing that King loves to play with is this idea of torture and that everybody to some extent is punished really good guy, bad guy. It doesn't matter. Everybody has problems and is tormented by their past or by things that they've Mm. done. And, and so that's really the only way I can place that kind of ending is that it's just, that's just kind of a really King-esque thing that, you know, like Sue, sure, she atoned, she's a good person, but this is still an incident that's going to live with her for the rest of her life. You know, she knows at the end of the day, she still played a part in this because as you say that the book ending of the film 
everything leads back to that first moment in the shower where she was bullied. Mm. And so even though Sue has done what she can to atone for that moment, I think, you know, she still has some knowledge that at the end of the day, she is partly responsible for the deaths of everyone at that prom because she played right. a part in bullying Carrie. So, yeah, I don't know. That's the only way I can really place that. <laughs> I may have gone a little galaxy brain. On that, really, but <laughs> Again, when a movie strikes you, for whatever reason, just that right moment, your your kind of mind opens up to all these different ideas and thoughts and like themes and and yeah, it's it doesn't always happen when it does, it's interesting, which is yeah. why on this rewatch, I'm gonna give Carrie a nine out of ten. Wow. But yep, it's only my number three. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> High praise. Uh this film for me on this rewatch is a seven, which is like I said, still still a very good film. I think that what it what it does that works well works really, really well. For me, like I said, the big thing this time was the two-dimensionality of some of those characters that just, for me, make it one of the lesser King adaptations mm. because that's just something that he got so much better at as he went on. So for me, it's number four. Okay, understandable. Well, let's move on. If if you thought we went galaxy brain on that one, <laughs> we could come up with a documentary full of conspiracy theories on this one. <laughs> Of course, I'm talking about 1980's The Shining, which currently has an 86% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Shining, a masterpiece of modern horror, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. Rated R. Opens Friday, June 13. Check newspapers for local listeners. This was directed and co-written by Stanley Kubrick. And uh, the other co-writer in that was Diane Johnson. It is based on The Shining by Stephen King. This is the triumph return of Jack Nicholson, last seen as good as it gets. It's the triumph return, briefly, of Tony Burton, last seen in Rocky. This film was released May 23rd, 1980 in the United States and April 2nd, 1980 in the United Kingdom. On a budget of $19 million, it made $47 million. Emotionally threadbare family winners in a hotel and is swallowed by isolation and madness. A former alcoholic writer takes on a job as the seasonal caretaker for an old hotel where things begin to get spooky as his mental state unravels. First off, I think the most interesting element of this is that Tony is Danny. <laughs> <laughs> From the future. If you know King's work, that's what he ends up doing, right? So I haven't actually read Dr. Sleep. Is that what you're referring to? It's mentioned Dr. Sleep or somewhere else where, yeah, it turns out. I just spoiled Dr. Sleep for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out, though, that that Tony, the voice inside of little Doc's little Danny's head is himself. It's him. Yeah, right. But it's not him from Dr. Sleep. It's him 10 years later. Right. Okay. What? 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 What did I hear you say? You want to talk about somebody who's galaxy brained? <laughs> Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. the, the metaverse, that's a popular term now, that this yeah. man was creating decades ago. Oh, yeah. And it just keeps building upon is 
bizarre. And so it's, it's, it's so fascinating. And it's like just the way that these worlds all connect for him is so strange. <laughs> Which is an, another reason why I think he's so hard to adapt. Do you think, I, I guess I'm trying to get into the mind of Kubrick here. Do you think Kubrick sits down and reads this and is like, all this other stuff I can't do? The layers upon layers of character detail and yeah. this plot point and that plot point. And because King is such a broad-minded writer, it's just like, I'm basically just going to get down to what I think this story is about and make my own version of it. Yeah. Do you think yeah. that's where the divorce happened? I definitely think so. This is a really interesting one for me because King obviously famously dislikes the film. Yeah. Even to this day, he's yeah. got his critiques. And and I can completely understand that while still appreciating what the film does differently. Um, like one of the things King really dislikes, he thinks that this film doesn't have enough supernatural elements. He thinks that this is too psychological almost. And I get that criticism but at the same time i i don't know i think the supernatural elements are definitely there and i i to me there's some mm. element of king almost misinterpreting his own work to an extent so yeah i i, I don't know it's a tough one <laughs> so are you like pro kubrick in this instance or are you pro king here does i'm this... in the middle mm. Yeah, you know, like I was looking at the reviews on Letterboxd and stuff and and I was like, I wouldn't go so far as to say I think this movie is overrated, but uh -oh. I'm definitely in the middle. I'm not yeah. I'm not on the crazy high end, I'm not on the low end. I'm I'm just kind of I like this movie and I think there's a lot of things it does exceptionally well. Um but yeah, there are things that I don't love about it. <laughs> so if you're in the middle on this, are you in the yep. middle on every A24 horror movie that has ever been made? <laughs> because their entire no, yeah. design and aesthetic is from this one film. <laughs> Absolutely it is. One of my notes was just about the score and yes, how the modern the score is. It is yeah. so modern. Like yeah. you could literally pick that score up and throw it in, like you say, any A24 film. Like, absolutely, this is the granddaddy of that style of horror, that real psychological, which I I know I'm not supposed to say this because The Shining is a classic, but I think it's been done better in most A24 films. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I, I know I'm going to get absolutely slammed for that opinion, and I'm sorry. I, like, I, I think this is a good movie, but I I do get the critique of it. You know, like this movie was slammed by critics when it first came out. And I think that's unfair. And I think that that's just critics weren't used to, like I say, this is, this is a very modern horror film for right. sure. I just think people were not used to or expecting what this film is. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm in the middle on this film. <laughs> well, we can't talk about the score without me noting this was Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind. Uh, Carlos actually helped develop the Moog synthesizer. Water, yeah, right. <laughs> so they were one of the people who who created that. So when we like talk about it, like this created modern horror, this yeah. is like almost this movie would have been like avant garde when it came out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and so it's at that like it's at the cutting edge, and quite literally down to how the score was created. 
it was the cutting edge of synthesizers and stuff like that. So yeah, it's yeah. also one of the first films to use the Steadicam, and I must say the cinematographer. I mean, it's Kubrick. Like yeah. there, are, there are some things you can critique about this film, and there are some things you can't. And I think the filmmaking itself, the production, is one of those things. Like this is a beautiful looking film. Uh, like the opening sequence has you hooked. That Steadicam through the yes. mountains of the Carter's driving is insane. And it doesn't matter how dated the just scroll of text on screen is. I don't care. I, I think that it's beautiful. And yet you're telling me that you're just in the middle of the road with this one. <laughs> 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 so what about it? Because so far, here's another one. We're just kissing its ass. What about it doesn't okay. work for you? Okay. As a horror film, I don't find this film scary. That's my first thing. Mm. And I know that you know, similar to Carrie, you could say, okay, well, it has much more going for it than that, which is an absolutely fair response. you know. But at the end of the day, this is meant to be a horror. The book is scary. I don't find this film scary in any way. The other thing for me is that and this is one of those things where, again, I know I'm going to get slammed. <laughs> one of King's big critiques of the film was the casting of Nicholson. And I'm a little bit with him there, and I understand his problem. I think that Nicholson is great in the later half of this film where he's meant to be going true psycho. My problem is exactly the same as Stephen King's, is that because Nicholson is just such a kind of manic personality, mm. I don't get the transition in, like that descent into madness just doesn't exist for me because it just feels like who he is. And so I think that for me, that actually kills the one thing this film is is doing, which is that kind of psychological descent. I just don't get it. And that's where I think Stephen King had a problem with the, the supernatural elements. It doesn't feel like the hotel is sending this guy crazy. It just feels like this guy is crazy. Kubrick's version of The Shining it's almost as if the shining awakens the house. Yeah. And, and yet it's the father who goes crazy. Who yeah. Also seems to be in some kind of communion with the house. So because there's no transformation with Nicholson and it just seems like he's having his own separate connection with the house, there is no descent. Does yeah, that, yeah. You know, it's because Shelley devolves uh, until the very end, right? When it reaches its peak, Wendy's oblivious to the different weird supernatural manifestations that do happen in the movie, yeah. as few as they yeah. are. She doesn't see them, right? It's Danny who sees it, or it's Jack who sees it, yeah. and they almost seem like they're on separate wings of the house. The the father and the son. It's almost like they're in separate relationships with the house. Yeah, and. But it doesn't seem because it's Nicholson that this is like he something that's growing where there's yeah. like this, the house is reaching out to him and seducing him. And then it's, an, you know, it's become a part of him and then he's transforms into like a, basically a manifestation of the estate and all of its horrors and all of its whatever, because he's Nicholson. He, he seems like possessed by the time he walk, he seems crazy and unhinged oh, yeah. walking in the door. Yes. Yeah. And then he then he's just completely unfazed with Lloyd, the bartender, being there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 
so it, it doesn't feel like well, this is a normal guy who, who, due to this supernatural confluence of events, is yeah. psychically being taken over by an evil place. It just it doesn't it doesn't ha- it doesn't have that descent. Yeah, and I get that you could say, well, this is my problem then for comparing this to the source material rather than seeing it as its own thing. But the movie's paced like that, though. It's not just – it's the way the movie's structured. Yeah. And so that's my biggest problem with the film is that it is is structured in that it is meant to feel like a descent and you just don't get that. That's my number one problem with this film is that – and I do think that you know this is a critique lots of people have and lots of people will say well you just you clearly don't get it or something i do think there are segments of this film that are paced too slow um which i know you're not supposed to say about a kubrick film and it's the shining <laughs> and you can bring up a24 and whatever and yes you know slow horror is, is definitely making a comeback you know like uh midsummer the director's cut for example oh is God, well over yeah. three hours long and yet I didn't feel that film was as slow as this because I felt the pacing and the narrative worked better for the story it was trying to tell, which is mm. very similar in some ways. Like what Kubrick's doing here is not really a supernatural story. This is a domestic story. This is about yeah. the breakdown of, of a family and you almost feel like this. we'd be seeing what happens on screen, maybe to a lesser extent, even if they stayed at home which is why I think the supernatural elements don't feel as connected because it's it's really just about the breakdown of this family. And Midsommar is similar in that it's about the breakdown of, of this couple, but I just think that it pays more attention to what's happening around it. So I think for me, the pacing of this film is a bit slow at times. Is it possible that they, they, they learned the lessons from oh, yeah. The Shining and said, this is Definitely. great, but if he just tightened it here or if I, because I think about like the the shock ending of this movie. Yeah. We there's just we just we cut to Jack there frozen in the ice. Yeah. But we linger on him. And you can tell the lingering is supposed to be the thing that is horrific. Yeah. But if you were to watch a A24 film, for instance, uh or one they would buy. That might just be like a, a, a tenth of that. Like I'm thinking of yeah. Saint Maud. I don't know if you've seen Saint Maud, and not to spoil that movie, but there's a there's like a single frame just at the very end, and then that's right before we cut to full black. Yeah, and I'm thinking, okay, that's the modern way we would do yeah. it. So is it, it's like he created the template, but we've is it possible directors have been refining that at least to uh, the ones that A24 yeah. like since that point <laughs> absolutely like i said like this is you can't deny it this is the granddaddy of that genre of horror i don't think yeah. we would have films like that if it weren't for this because and like i said i think this was unfairly maligned at the time because people weren't used to what this film is doing um and you mm. still have that problem now a lot of a24 films still have pretty bad reception from general audiences but i do think that most horror aficionados are, are more used to it due to films like this but you're right to me moments like that the the kind of snap cut that you're talking about in something like Maud is is more to me that that creates more tension and it's more unsettling mm. when you get a brief window of something and then it's pulled away before you really have the time to process it yeah something about that really unsettles the brain whereas in this film 
there are moments, and it's not just that ending, but there are moments where it will linger on something. And it's supposed to make you feel more uncomfortable the longer you look at it. But in effect, for me, it kind of does the opposite of that. make of Wendy not exactly being presented sympathetically at first <laughs> and I don't I, I, I tweeted this and it did get some response I find Shelley Duvall's performance in this movie and I and we'll get we'll open it up to what she experienced in the set because it is terrible yeah but I find her performance to be very very annoying and when yeah, she yeah. walks in it's like hey we'll get some sandwiches and stuff <laughs> i'm just yeah. like <laughs> yeah he's like yeah. can't you see i'm working here <laughs> and she's like oh i just thought maybe we could take a break and, just like, <laughs> and she's so <laughs> googly eyed and empty-headed in that moment you just want to be yeah. like you would or at least i'm sitting there going get the fuck out of there yeah, yeah. Yeah, of yeah. his face. <laughs> the, and that's kind of my second biggest problem with the film is her. Her acting, her character, everything about mm. it is so anti-King. It goes back to what I was saying about Carrie, where you have those kind of underdeveloped characters. What annoys me is that that's not Wendy from the book. Wendy is quite a strong, prominent character in the book, as King is very capable of writing very strong female characters, I think. Well, wasn't she like, um, uh, uh, like a the head of the cheerleading squad, or so? Or she was described that way as a blonde who was like, yeah, could be the head yeah. of the cheerleading squad, or was in high school as like, yeah, a very strong character. And then that's not, not the character in the movie. Yeah, this character is so under. She's basically just there to scream, really. <laughs> And yes. I don't even think Shelley Duvall does that well. <laughs> I don't want to rag on her. So she she was the very first um, Razzie winner for worst female actress for worst actress. Really? Yeah. But honestly, she's she's bad in this film. I don't think it's wrong to say that she's really bad, and the character is terrible. This is KDK One. We're receiving you. Over. Hi, this is Wendy Torrance at the Overlook Hotel. Hi, how are you folks getting on up there? Over? Oh, we're just fine. But our telephones don't seem to be doing too well. Are the lines down by any chance? Over. Yes, quite a few of them are down due to the storm. Over. Any chance of them being repaired soon? Over. Well, I wouldn't like to say. Most winters, they stay that way until spring. Over. Boy, this storm is really something, isn't it? Over. Oh, yes, it's one of the worst we've had for years. Is there anything else we can do for you, Mrs. Torrance? Over. I suppose not. Over. Well, if you folks have any problems up there, just give us a call. And Mrs. Torrance? I think it might be a good idea if you leave your radio on all the time now. Over. Okay, we'll do that. It was real nice talking to you. Bye. Bye. Over now. Over now. Kubrick was very unkind to her on this set. Well, yeah, actually, so I actually don't know much about that. I I only saw briefly about that the other day when, you know, researching for this. What was he just like 
he he like uh, isolated her from the rest of the cast, especially Jack. He would right. specifically only give compliments and praise to Jack's performance, and he would not ever give her a compliment or told her she was doing anything right. Um, That's he terrible. Had, Yes. Now he was famous for he wouldn't like go to print on a on a shot or a scene until about the thirty fifth take. So he just he'd run it thirty four times, and knowing he was not going to use any of it, just forcing the scene over and over and over again to get whatever it is they thought he wanted. Yeah. And but with Duvall, he shot the going backwards up the stairs Simpsons parody. You know, yeah. with a bat sequence, 127 <laughs> times. Wow, I mean that—that that is a lot of times. Like, Which is the I Guinness mean, Book like a world yeah. record number of takes, and I'm—it's not, not me exaggerating. It's literally the record holder for the number of takes. Everybody knows that a lot of takes is fairly common, but that is unheard of. Like that's—I mean, with a lot of films these days, you're talking maybe five yeah. or six. Like, I mean, over a hundred is that's intense. She said that because you're doing it that many takes. Her throat was completely shot. So maybe her screams yeah. in the movie are terrible because she was having to do, she was yeah. already done 50 takes of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's just, that seems crazy to me. That's, that's the number one way to get a bad performance out of, out of an actor doing more than that many takes. You're just exhausting them and they're just going to lose the emotion. Well, she's got the baseball bat, right? Yeah. And her, she said her hands were like bloodied and raw because she was having to swing it wildly 127 times. And I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, I read her performance as being bad. Yeah. <laughs> but is it bad because I'm getting the 127th take? Yeah. Is it bad because Stanley Kubrick wants her to be like when she's running up the stairs? I, I tweeted about this too with a knife and her whole body is like so wobbly and yeah. it's like it's like she's in such hysterics and i'm thinking okay is that a bad performance or is that a real person experiencing hysterics on screen yeah because they've been traumatized <laughs> into this ridiculous state you, you you know so that's that's also something that conflicts me about the film yeah yeah i mean I'm t- i mean i still don't think her performance is good but now i don't begrudge her for it <laughs> 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 well fair enough <laughs> When you're talking about a movie as legendary as The Shining, it's hard to watch it and feel like you don't have 10 hours to talk about it. Well, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, but this movie is an hour longer than Carrie, and I think we've spoken about it for maybe 10 minutes less. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been talked about so much. And yeah, examined that's true. so yeah. thoroughly that yeah. I, what is there left to really say about it in comparison to some of these other movies that don't necessarily get talked about as much, or at least yeah. on the same breath. Yeah. I think that's totally, that's absolutely fair. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I think, I think we can move on from this one. Okay. Yeah. So for me, I'm going to give this a, because of all the issues that you and I brought up, I'm going to give it an 8.7 out of 10. It's going to come as my number four for the week. Yeah. Uh, cool. Where does it sit for you? I feel so justified. I was so worried that, you know, because so many people very highly praised this movie and I, I get that. I'm not, yeah, nothing against those people. I'm just very glad that I wasn't on here kind of negative talking about this film myself. I'm a (laughs) 7.5. I think that there are, 
exceptional things about the film. Like I said, the cinematography, the score, just the the style of this film was just something that didn't really exist at the time and now has right. become so prominent because of this film. And it was funny. There was one thing that King said about the film, which is that even though he doesn't like it, you can't deny that a Kubrick film has something to it. Like there's just yeah. something interesting about his filmmaking that draws you in. And and you almost, even though, like I said, I think there are parts that are too slowly paced for the film. I never wanted to turn it off or scroll on my phone mm. or anything at the time. So I think there's a lot of good about this film, but yeah. So for me, it's a 7.5 and it is my, um, it's my third. Okay. All right, well, moving on to, we're getting into the wild cards now. We're we're moving on to 1986's Stand By Me, which currently has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, man, where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? Columbia Pictures presents... Kids gone, they're never going to find him. Not where they're looking. A Rob Reiner film. I'm never going to get out of this town now, my Gordy. You can do anything you want, man. Stand by me. There's four of us, eyeball. You just make your move. You're dead. Rated R. Now in select cities. Sneak preview August 16th in additional cities. Stand by me was directed by Rob Reiner with a screenplay by Bruce A. Evans and uh, Reynold Gideon. It's based on The Body by Stephen King. It's a triumph return of Marshall Bell, last seen in Nightmare to Elba Street 2. The film was released August 8th, 1986. August 22nd, 1986, it went wide. On a budget of 7.5 to 8 million, it made 52.3 million. Four boys become young men on a two-day trek to face death. Four young boys go on a journey to discover a dead body, hoping to find fame and fortune, but what they really discover is friendship. <laughs> is that all this movie is? Um, no, not to me. I hmm. wait. Uh, swearing is okay, right? Oh yeah, it's everyone. I f- love this movie. I love this movie so much. And it's funny, that's almost an opinion that has gone out of vogue. Like, I was messaging my former co-host, and I was like, Stand By Me is great. He's like, yeah, I don't rate it. Wow. And I just, I, to me, this movie does everything it's trying to do so well. Like, everything it's aiming for, it achieves. And I think this movie is about, I mean, obviously, it's a coming-of-age story that's, that's obvious. As you said, a lot of King's work involves that element, but uh, like, this is about, this is about relationships and like those relationships that you form and, and will never forget. And I, I just, I love this movie so much. (sighs) I, there's something about this movie, including the narration. Yeah. It just draws me into it. Yeah. To the point where I, I feel like you feel like the heat of the summer. Yeah, definitely. like you, yeah. you feel the yeah. dirt. You feel like, and I think it's also it's just tapping into such a common experience of just like yeah, you're you're not quite like you're not like a teenager, but you're not like a kid anymore. But you're still kind of a kid. Yeah, and it's it's the it's the line at the end of the movie, which is like you like I don't think I ever had better friends than I had when I was yeah. twelve. 
he's like, Jesus, yeah. does anybody? And the answer is no. For the most, for most people, the answer is no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like when and he somehow captures this in the story and Reiner somehow captures that in the film. Absolutely. The, the sense of, it's amazing. When I messaged Topher, part of his, he was like, oh, I didn't see it when mm. I was a kid. So I was like, Neither did I. I actually only saw this movie for the first time. It would have been in the wow. last 10 years, definitely. And and I obviously was not a kid in the 50s, either, <laughs> as shocking as that may be. And yeah. yet the level of nostalgia that this film is able to impart despite yeah. that is insane because I watched this movie and, like you say, you feel it. You get that feeling. I remember walking the streets with my friends when i was around like 11 12 years old and you felt invincible you're like i'm i'm 12 now i can i can walk around by myself i could go camping in the middle of nowhere like it's just amazing how much this film is able to give that feeling off timelessly i think yeah because i'm like you i wasn't marty mcfly and and like you know george mcfly in 1955 (laughs) like i I was yeah. You know, I'm a contemporary human being. <laughs> and yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's not my experience, but somehow by being so specific, it is com- common. Yeah. Yes. You know, yes. It, because it's yeah. such a specific place in time, it just transcends. Uh and yeah. and you just connect to it because we've all had that experience of best for best friends yeah. at a certain age and you might not be best friends six months from now you may never see that person after yeah. middle school or high school but in that summer in that moment those you are like brothers yeah. and you're you have some trip like you said some camping in the woods or in this case going to find a dead body uh that you just have that yeah. kind of defining yeah. moment of your friendship that you will carry with you yeah. the, for the rest of your life and i think the other thing this movie has is Maybe not today, but I, but certainly like in the nineties. Uh, so about a, you know, five, 10 years after this movie came out, it, it played on cable all the time. And I was a kid and it hooked me. I wasn't a nostalgic old yeah, dad yeah. looking back at, I was <laughs> younger or roughly the same age as the characters. Now yeah, I'm getting yeah. closer to the dad's age. And I, the movie still hooks me because I connect more now with the Dreyfus character who's yeah, with that looking, back. looking back. Yeah. And so I think this movie, yeah. if it, if it does hook you is also timeless in that way. The story is timeless. Yeah. And in that yeah. framework, the, 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 your main, the two eras are, are like, like kind of timeless. Your main, like both iterations, of that character, you can relate to, to both of them. So I, yeah. yeah. I think the way this movie achieves that really is through the characters. I think, like I said before, King is so good at establishing characters. And what he does so well is, yeah, I, I, I like to think of myself as hopefully one day being a writer, you know, currently doing a a degree in creative writing. And one thing that you learn is that specificity in characters is what makes them grounded Mm. and feel real, you know, like, you know, give a character an interest, give them, you know, some kind of opinion and and be specific about it because that's what makes them feel like a real fleshed out person. But what King does so well is blending that with these really kind of generic, you know, like 
everybody had the friend who was this yeah, and everybody had like the friend who was that. And, and so by yeah. – exactly. And so by casting these four boys under those archetypes but then being specific with who uh, they are individual yeah. of that, it just hooks you in so much. And not even to mention that this has to be the best example of child yeah. acting ever put to film you know like i think there's an argument for Haley joel osman in the sixth sense who's exceptional but the fact that all four of these boys carry yeah. this film is crazy yeah it's interesting because you've got obviously uh river phoenix um and mm-hmm. who is just an incredible just a standout you've got will yeah. wheaton this is the last time i could get through anything will wheaton was in uh you got you know <laughs> Corey Feldman and you got uh, Jerry O'Connell yep. and not one of them gives a false note or a false. They seem like like no, just yeah. a group of real kids and, but they don't, yeah. it, it's just, it, it, they're, they're, they're Hollywood kids. No doubt about it. Yeah. But yet somehow they're real at the same time. Yeah, you watch Will Wheaton's performance in this film, and it's almost mind-boggling that he didn't go on to become one of the biggest stars in the world. That he kind of, you know, he he fell into next generation and then almost into yeah. obscurity. Really, these days, more of a he's more of a personality now than yeah. he is an actor, oh, yeah. even. And it's it's crazy to think that looking at his performance in this film, where he is just so perfect from start to finish he's so yeah. real and you care about him so much yeah it it just it their interactions with each other ring true yeah their their interactions with the larger world the things they decide to do the trouble yeah. the mischief they decide to get into their fears their how they would react like it, it just yeah it's just all so relatable and it, it's all so authentic even yeah. though it, it has this like very warm Hollywood glow to it almost. And it, yeah, you know, it's got yeah. Kiefer Sutherland. And it's got all these like actorly types in it. Yeah. And it has this like super warm Rob Reiner tone to it. Yeah. Vi- yeah. Visually. And yet it's like, oh, this feels very real. Yeah. It do- <laughs> it's crazy given, given the subject matter, you know, like they're yeah. going to find a dead body and right. like, and like just bad bad things happen to them and around them and have happened with their families and stuff. And yet you're right, the movie feels incredibly warm and fuzzy. Like it it gives off that feeling <laughs> yeah. like a warm hug, even though yes. it's like the subject matter is not for the for the most part that nice. No. Because because that kind of stuff doesn't like what matters to the characters and the kids for the majority of this film is their friendship. Yeah. It's just you know, and that's the feeling they get from each other, and so that's the feeling that's passed on to the audience. So the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. Almost, it's just you know, like Will Wheaton's dad, Gordy's dad, is is a, is a dick to him, and oh, yeah. genuinely thinks that he should have died instead of his brother. But when you think of this movie, what you remember is Chris River Phoenix telling him, you know, your dad doesn't hate you. He just doesn't know you. You know, like the, that warm yeah. moment, the friendship that they feel for each other, that's what is passed on through the lens. And it just works so well for me. Well, the movie really is, it's, it's that warm, fuzzy movie draws you in, like you said. But it's also what it really is. It's a meditation on death and grief. Yeah. Yeah. Because Ray Brower's dead. In the beginning, that's the whole premise, right? Is that Ray Brower 
got knocked out of his shoes by this train. We're going to go. We overheard where the dead body was. We're going to Vern did, and we're going to go find it. That's okay. That's the the inciting incident. But also, Denny's dead. His brother is dead. Yeah. And so you could understand, like, this is a kid wrestling with losing the only, maybe the only person in his immediate family who loved him. Yeah. And so you can understand the attraction to death in a way. Like, he's, yeah, he needs to go see this dead body as a way yeah. of processing his, his, his brother's death. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the other kids are just kind of kids and, you know, but I don't know. I just lost the plot on what I was going to say, but <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a dour movie, like you said, but it doesn't feel that way. Yeah. And ultimately the movie yeah. ends with Chris's death. It starts with death. It's about death. We're processing yeah. death. And yeah. then he, in loss and grief and like, was like inevitability and like who are we going to yeah. grow into and aging and the kids are afraid of aging. And yeah. It's like, it's all this sort of stuff. And like, you don't think about it as being like, well, well, that's the one where <laughs> just they all have, like 12 year olds have an existential crisis on their way <laughs> yeah. to finding a dead body yeah, and have to pull a gun on their bullies to yeah. stop them from killing them. <laughs> yeah, But it's yeah. such a warm family, like almost borderline family film. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah. And you're right. Like by seeing that dead body, it gives Gordy that closure over yeah. his brother's death. And then again, by reliving this journey and writing the story down, that's how he gets that closure on Chris's death in current day as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, <laughs> this is this one. Oh man. In a way I knew it was going to be this high. I, I almost wrestled with making it higher. Yeah. Which I, I know that's like when you're talking about Stephen King adaptations, you're talking about some of the movies of this list. Maybe this one wouldn't be so high for some people, but I am going to put this in at my number two Ugh. for the week. It, it was almost my number one, but, but I, I, it's like, I, uh, but I just, I, I couldn't <laughs> quite do it. Uh, I give it a 9.5 out of 10. I think it's that good. And that's really, really, really high for me. Yeah, I think that, I, I think it's that good. I love how close we've been so far. I'm exactly <laughs> the same. This is my number two. It's a nine out of ten. I think this is a near perfect film. Like, yeah. there, you know, I personally I don't love the music in the film. I actually don't like the fact that this film is tied so heavily to that pop song. <laughs> Uh, um but you know that's just that happens and that's yeah. fine <laughs> but i yeah i i'm a nine i absolutely love this film oh man i oh i hope we have the same number one then because if not it's gonna go one of two ways well yeah because i already said i really dislike one of the films so <laughs> It's going to go one of two ways, folks, and I think we're about to find out. Of course, we're talking about 1994's The Shawshank Redemption, which currently has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. By the power vested in me by the state of Maine, I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back. Spellbinding. Riveting. Unforgettable. Unforgettable. 
The Shawshank Redemption is one of the best films of the year. An emotional blockbuster. A monumental achievement in filmmaking. What are you talking about? The Shawshank Redemption was written and directed by Frank Darabont. It is based on Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption by Stephen King. It is the triumphant return of Morgan Freeman, last seen in Deep Impact. It's the triumphant return of Paul McCrane, last seen in RoboCop. It's the triumphant return of Mark Rolston Allen's, last seen in I Don't Remember. I'm going to check that film out. I don't recall that one. (laughs) (laughs) It was released September 10th, 1994 at uh, TIFF and September 23rd, 1994 in the United States on a budget of $25 million. This thing made $75.3 million. A misunderstood banker and potential murderer suffers decades of indignities while clinging to hope at the hand of a corrupt penal system. Yeah, this was really hard to condense down into a single. The story yeah. of two men and their friendship as they navigate years of highs and lows in the prison system. Let me just say that this is not the film I dislike. <laughs> I love this film a lot, a hell of a lot. And it's almost a bit naff to say that. You know, like this film was famously like the number one on the top 250 IMDb for a very, very long time. I think there's a lot of people out there who, while they like the film, don't think that it ever really justified that kind of status but i mean geez i love this film a lot i actually only saw it for the first time two years ago wow yeah and i had almost avoided it because it had such a high status i like to be a bit of a contrarian (laughs) and so by not having watched it i could do that because i didn't need to agree with people or disagree with people i just i haven't seen it but i was forced to watch it yeah, it must have been about two, three years ago by a patron of the show. And I'm so grateful that I finally watched it because now it's one of my favorite films. I think that this is virtually a flawless film. Oh, no. I know. Hey, no, 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 no. Why stand by me? I'm just so moved every time I watch the movie. Yeah. Like, I, I actually have to be very selective of when I watch it. Because yeah. if I'm in a certain play, I'm like, I don't want to go there. <laughs> yeah. But I watched yeah. it for the show. And I, so when I'm done with that experience, because I'm watching them chronologically, I'm like, I don't want the Shawshank Redemption to be as good as the movie I just watched. Because yeah. I, I want to <laughs> be able to say, well, actually, Stand By Me is the better one. And, and Shawshank is good, but it's not that good because here's some flaws I found in it. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, yeah. This is there's nothing bad about this movie. It's and nothing. What boggles the mind the most is the struggles of telling a narrative over this period of time. Like this is this is a movie that spans not years, not a single decade. This spans multiple decades. Yep. And yet the pacing is spot on. The structure of the narrative is spot on. You care yeah. about every single one of these characters. This is this is one of those things I was talking about with King where even a lot of the side characters are still fleshed out. Like when Old Mate, who runs the library, leaves and yeah. can't handle the outside, it's those small details. This could have easily just been a film literally about the two main characters, Red and Andy. It could have been, but that's not King. Like, it's just, it's so much more than that. And it's just, 
a beautiful film. Yeah, in a lesser work, we don't care about Brooks Hanlon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't care about any you know any of these other side characters or any of these little. So yeah, we we were just and and if that happens, then it almost becomes a series of vignettes. Yeah. Because we're just watching the one character we care about go through a situation and then they something else happens and they it, that's all it would be. But because the world is so fleshed out, yeah. even though we're we're going through the passage of time, you know, making these jumps and all this sort of stuff, yeah. it doesn't feel pocketed. It feel it doesn't feel like it, like I said, a series of vignettes. It's paced perfectly, so it feels like you're just on the this linear story like yeah that i I don't i don't it's just it doesn't feel choppy it doesn't feel over long it doesn't feel like oh well there's some stuff missing and yeah it feels like we flash forward too far or like it 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 just it just is this immersive world that is very cleverly giving you the passage of time with stuff like sam the bird getting a little or jake rather aging yeah you know we're, we're we don't even leave the shot we don't even leave you know somebody yeah. goes out one door and comes back in another <laughs> or it's two scenes butting up to each other and we can just tell oh i you know another the mutton chop the the sideburns are different so uh, another four years or five years or six years must have gone by yeah 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 but it's it, you're not thinking about it it's effective no. because it just happens yeah i think that darabont is almost as strong a writer as Stephen King. And so mm. the relationship between them makes so much sense. Yeah. So I, I'm sure that you know this, Darabont, their relationship started because he was part of Stephen King's Dollar Baby program. He bought the rights to one of King's short stories for a dollar, which is, and mm. he still runs this program today to kind of help filmmakers learn how to adapt. And it like, I mean, I, I love King for so many reasons, but that's just one of them. And part of the, the clause of, you know, this contract is that you're not allowed to release the film, but you have to send a copy to Stephen King. Mm. And King saw this film and loved it so much that I forget what it is, but he gave um, Darabont the rights to this for virtually nothing. <laughs> it wow. was almost a gift. Um, and I just think that this adaptation is so incredibly strong. And, like, most studios would gawk at someone saying they want to make this you know, or it's hard to describe because it's a prison movie, but part of me wants to describe it as a feel good movie in some yes. ways. Yeah, like yeah. it must have been a hell of a lot of work to get this film past the studio at this length. Um, but like, thank God it's not cut any shorter. It's just, it's just perfect. It feels so right. How do, how do we get to the point where we feel collegial with, uh, other than Andy, uh, murderers. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that whole that whole lunch table of guys. But I tell you, yeah. we're in the midpoint of the movies, and Andy's in good standing with them. We like them. <laughs> yeah, and and you know that they're murderers. You know that. Yeah. Regardless of how much he's rehabilitated or whatever, you know that Morgan Freeman's red is a killer. Yeah. And I still think that the movie does an interesting thing where, for a long time. I feel like it actually remains quite ambiguous over oh, Andy's, yes. you know, yeah. like the fact that the movie opens with Andy with the gun outside the house and stuff. 
Yeah. I still think to this day, even towards the end, it is questionable. I think that we want to believe he didn't do it because we care about him so much. And obviously you get told that there's an admittance by someone else who says they did it. But I still think that this movie does a pretty masterful job of saying it doesn't matter. Like you'll care about this character, whether he did it or not. Like his innocence isn't the reason that we're following this story. It shouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't. And yet it does so much. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And yet it does so much. The ending shouldn't work because it should feel schmaltzy. Yeah. It should feel cheesy. It should feel like, oh, like, you know, the break, he gets out of prison, he gets away with the money. That's cool. But the, then Red gets out and then Red finds him and it ends up with them hugging. I think even Tim Robbins, I think, is wearing a white shirt on the beach like all white people do on vacation. (laughs) And you're like, this should be cheesy and corny. You know, these two guys, two, you know, potentially one mur- one confirmed murderer and one potential wife murderer. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. if at the very least, if you didn't murder his wife, admittedly was an asshole. Yeah. We've gotten to care about them. And now yeah. this moment, which could be corny, isn't corny. Yeah. It's filled with life and hope and you yeah. feel invigorated by it. Exactly. And yeah, that's what makes this like a transcendent movie that you almost want to say it can't be that good. <laughs> yeah. And then it is because even the stuff that would be cliche in another movie, it doesn't feel cliche here. Well, that's the thing. In in any lesser movie, like I I don't like the tearjerker genre, which I don't think yeah. this film is, but it it borders on it. Like there I'm a crier and there are several moments I cry in this film. And yeah. Most movies that do that do come off off as um, disingenuous. You know, like a lot of movies like that, I think it it feels like their their sole purpose is to make the audience cry because that that tricks you and makes you feel like you have an emotional connection to the characters even if you don't. But this movie doesn't do that. This movie genuinely makes you cry because you have that emotional connection to the characters. It It doesn't need to trick you into that feeling. It just genuinely does it and i think a lot of that is the writing the fact that they didn't um cut themselves short on the length of the film like Mm. this movie doesn't feel long and any less and you might not have as deep a connection to the characters because you see these characters grow over years and years and years and so you really do feel that by the end of the film i think plus the score is just incredible like yeah (laughs) The Thomas Newman score again. Oh. There, there's certain notes of it where I'm like, or certain um, uh, parts of it that I'm just like, yeah, that should feel schmaltzy, manipulative yeah. and schmaltzy, yeah. but it doesn't. It feels yeah. right. It yeah. feels like you're. It, it feels perfect for this film. Yeah, and yeah, I, I on any any other day I would have been like, yeah, Shawshank Redemption. But for for that. That day I'm watching Stand By Me, I'm like, this is the time I want to be able to say Shawshank's <laughs> not that good. But it is. Yeah. Which is why yeah. I'm going to give it a 9.75 out of 10. And it is my best of the week. I'm adding it to the short list. Yeah. This is also my number one of the week. It's my best. <laughs> it, is, it is a straight up 10 for me. I, wow. I, I, I typically don't do the, the decimal thing on my show. So I'm kind of just ingrained. Like if it's a 9.75, that's a 10 for me. Like this is just, <laughs> there, there is, I, I honestly cannot think of anything about this film that 
is a disservice to the storytelling, to the narrative. Like I just think everything it's lightning in a bottle almost. Every element comes together yeah. so incredibly well. Like Darabon's direction, some of those beautiful shots, like those sweeping overviews of the prison. Oh yeah. Like and I cannot imagine the challenges of filming in a real prison where you have actual walls and stuff that can't be moved, but like it's just well, from that start prison, to finish, it's yeah, perfect. that prison is a real prison. Yeah. And it is located 45 minutes from sunny, tropical Akron, Ohio, where really? I am. Really? No oh, shit. yeah. Wow. And I've, I've driven by it a million wow. times on the highway, but I've, I've never been there. They do tours of it and stuff like yeah. that. And you would think, like, I could go to the Shawshank Prison and do a tour and see where they filmed a lot of the stuff, and I've never done it. Shame on me as the movie nerd. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, it's just it's a. I've driven by it a million times, and I was like, "Well, Shawshank was there," and it doesn't look it doesn't look like it's changed at all since that yeah. period of time. So, wow, yeah, That's I, awesome, I, and man. knowing where it's at, I, I can't imagine they how difficult it would have been trying yeah. to shoot a film there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think that this film is just like I said, perfect. Easily my best of the binge. All right, well, that leaves only one. <laughs> <laughs> And this is, I don't know, we, we, this is going to be potentially controversial. I'm not okay. sure. All right. We're talking about 2017's It, which currently has an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Look, everywhere It happens, it's all connected by the sewers. <gasps> what happened? we stick together all of us will win make it a wonderful day kill them all kill them all it rated r september 8th it was directed by andy machete with a screenplay by chase palmer carrie fukunaga and gary doberman it is based on it by stephen king it was released september 5th 2017 at the tcl chinese theater and september 8th 2017 in the united states on a budget of $35 million, it made $701.8 million mm-hmm. at the box office. Preteens forego sewer orgy, but not their worst fears in their fight against cosmic clown horror. There is an unsettling and evil presence in the town of Derry, and it's focused itself on seven children with an aim to feed on their fear. <sighs> this, okay. <laughs> This movie came out. I saw it in theaters. I liked yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. I have not. Re- it wasn't like I didn't love it, but I was like, ah, I liked it. Mm-hmm. I have not revisited. I've seen you know bits and pieces of it, but I have not. I don't own it. I haven't like, you know, this isn't part of my uh, weekly routine in my life is to yeah. watch this movie. It was a one and done experience for me. So I went into it with think, like having a good impression of it overall. Yep. And I don't know. The movie doesn't really work for me anymore. Yeah. I, this is, this is probably the second most disappointed I've ever been leaving a theater. Uh, this is Whoa. my favorite King book. I love this book. And part of me still thinks maybe this is my problem just because I love the book so much. I had the highest hopes for this film. Like I, I took a friend who knew nothing about it. I was like, we, we got to go see this. I can't wait for this movie. I love the book. People are saying this movie is great. And I 
hated it. I thought it was complete garbage from start to finish. And surprisingly, I actually have revisited it quite a few times. A, a couple of years ago on our show, we did a, a movie mass debate with a couple of other podcasters about the merits of this movie, where some of us were arguing for it, some of us, myself included, were against it, and so I had to rewatch it for that. Rewatching it the other night for this show as part of the binge, I was able to appreciate some elements of it, mm. but I still just I do not like this movie. <laughs> Where does it break down for you? Why doesn't why doesn't it work? What so have you read the book? I have not. I don't. Okay. I don't have. I just. I. I'm intimidated. It's. It's like a phone book. <laughs> yes, it's pretty. It's pretty fat. It's yeah. pretty, like people talk about the stand, but it is. Um. It's. It's pretty fat. Yeah. I. I. What really, really falls apart in this film for me is the structure and the storytelling and the narrative. I know mm. that it is a daunting process. Like you say, this is a big book. So it's it's a daunting process to think about adapting this, but I just think they went about it the wrong way. The split mm. between part one and two, splitting the child and adult timelines, for me, I just can't understand that decision because the intertwining of those two narratives is what makes the structure of the story work. Because what happens as adults is effectively exactly what happens as children. So mm. I already watched this movie getting angry about part two because I was like, well, now I know that they're going to change things. Otherwise, it's just the same movie with adults instead of kids. And that is, that's just silly. They're not going to do that. So I, mm. I already knew that they were going to be altering things. But that structure of flashing back and forwards, it would almost be like if someone took the show Lost and decided to cut all the flashbacks out of it and show them first. You know, like you're losing any kind of character development and, and structure mm. and nuance by doing it that way. And so that instantly was my biggest problem. The second problem for me is that this film really, like I said to you before, it to me, the book is almost closer to Stand By Me for most parts than it is to any of his horror stuff. Right. This film keeps a little bit of that, really just to do nothing but kind of give you a feeling of nostalgia. And apart from that, it tries to make this into a straightforward horror, and my problem is it's not scary. This film is, just relies on jump scares from start to finish. Yeah. It has a real heavy focus on Pennywise <clears throat> the Clown, whereas in the book, the point is that it can kind of appear as any of your fears and Pennywise is just kind of one of them that we see sparingly but in this it's almost like it like Pennywise is it and so I don't know it mm. just it just didn't land for me I think the movie is I think it's self-aware of the TV movie Tim Curry which is why I think mm -hmm. they it focused so much on Pennywise yeah you know because it, it in its to me, it almost feels like a parody of a Nightmare on Elm Street movie more yeah, than yeah. it. I didn't notice that the the when I watched it in the theaters and enjoyed it, but the way that it's just a series of kids basically have nightmares, wait, yeah. surrealistic nightmares, and Pennywise, you know, appears. And if it was Freddy, he'd kill the kids one at a time. Yeah. Pennywise doesn't. Uh, he comes out, there's a jump scare and then boom, you know, the, the encounter's over. Uh, and I'm just like, but the encounters are so, they almost have that like nightmare numb street, like 
semi-comedic factor to them. Yeah. Especially like the the Elm Street sequels. And it, it, this movie's like tonally kind of like that. And I'm like, if if they made a modern Nightmare on Elm Street, it would be it. It would be, yeah. instead of Pennywise, it'd be Freddy. Yeah. And that would be, and this is how they would do it. And so therefore it doesn't, it just doesn't hold up as like its own. I think it's, it's self-aware of the eighties, the new yeah. kids in the block stuff. I, th- I think there, there's references to nightmare on Elm street in, in the movie, like in the marquee and stuff like that. I think. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, I get what you're doing. Yeah. You're imitating a scary movie. You're not a scary movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing for me is that I just don't actually get scared once in this film. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of moments where it wants you to be scared, but they're really nothing more than jump scares. I think, like, the opening scene for this film is so far and away the best thing that happens in the film. Yes. Like, it's fairly faithful to the book. Yeah. It's actually fairly scary. And then from that point on, you just get a bunch of Pennywise running at the screen while kind of shaking weirdly. And you're like, am I meant to, am I meant to be scared by this? Because I'm yeah. just not. Like, I get it. He can go cross-eyed. That's kind of cool. But I'm not scared. <laughs> well, you're also forgetting the, like, bong or the oh, clatter. Yeah. And the, yeah. yeah. It's like yeah. we got to we gotta bang pots and pans at the same time that he's running at yeah. you sideways. Yeah. Yeah. And as like the references to other scary movies, like you were saying, I actually don't hate that. That actually is a large part of the book. Like, so the book obviously set in the fifties, not the eighties. And a lot of the times Pennywise appears, it is as kind of horror movie monsters of the time, the the werewolf and, you know, and I don't, I don't mind that, but you're right. This movie kind of skirts around that and ends up feeling like a parody rather than actually playing into that because you know what that is the kind of stuff that kids would be scared of like the movies and stuff that they've seen or yeah but right. instead this 90 percent of the time just goes with a clown like like we get a few of we get the the painting lady and we get eddie's leper and you know like they're they're scary but i just yeah it just doesn't do it for me i for the life of me i don't know uh, I think this was put out by Warner Brothers, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Warner Brothers. I think it was New Line, but Maybe New Line was owned by Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah. Freddy Krueger is owned by New Line. Yeah, I had the same thought. Yeah, I didn't understand. I don't understand why he at one point didn't turn into Freddy Krueger. To me, that would be that would be worthwhile. If you're updating this movie to the '80s, that right. would make so much sense. <laughs> Cause that, cause the werewolf doesn't appear because it wouldn't make sense for a kid to be afraid of a werewolf exactly. in the eighties. So they yeah. got rid of the werewolf and it's just, it's just Pennywise. Yeah. He doesn't transform the werewolf. I think his, his claws grow out a little bit yeah. like the werewolf, but that's like, that's about it. That's like yeah. a little visual reference. And I'm like, nah, it makes more sense in that scene that he would turn into Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. because they own the rights to him. And if, like, if you're going to have it on the marquee and this is rather than just having it be another Pennywise, generic Pennywise encounter, like yeah. you said, you could. So it's just, again, it just, it feels. Yeah. It feel I don't know how to describe it other than to say it feels like a parody at times of a yeah. horror movie. And, and, and when it gets to the, the friendship and the summer and the whatever, it almost feels like a parody of stand by me. Yeah. It, it, it lacks some kind of that, whatever that authenticness we talked about in some of these other movies, mm. 
this doesn't have that same feeling. And so it comes off as phony. And then on top of that, all the yeah. scares are CGI for the most part. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so it's not great it, CGI. <laughs> yeah. So it just doesn't, it yeah. doesn't scare you because it doesn't feel real at all. To me, I would describe this movie as being soulless. Like I just mm. think firstly, by, by killing that structure of King's narrative, that takes so much out of what the story is actually saying. And then even the update to the eighties, I kind of felt at the time, like you could make the argument that, you know, people watching this today were kids in the eighties. So, you know, let's, let's go off that. I didn't feel that. I kind of felt like they more changed it to bank off nostalgia from shows like stranger things and stuff, which Mm. was really big at the time. Like I felt that that, that to me felt more like a soulless marketing move, you know, like our oh, people are into the eighties at the moment, you know, like we've got, um, what was the Spielberg one? Ready player one. Yeah. I think had just come out. You've got a lot of kind of, you know, the eighties are, are big at the moment in nostalgia. To me, it felt more like a soulless move rather than anything to do with the narrative itself. You thought it was just a, uh, a cash grab and not necessarily yeah. a, yeah. Which yeah, just it got me off its side from the moment it started. <laughs> But like I said, rewatching the other night, I was able to appreciate a few more things about it. I think I think that the dialogue between the children is pretty well written and realistic. Like that yeah. to me is one of the few things that rings true. And it's like, okay, that's the way that kids or well, that's certainly the way me and my friends spoke to each other growing yeah. up. Like so you, that's good. And that's when you were rare. also looking for dead bodies, because this is another group <laughs> yeah. of kids exactly. looking for dead children. So yeah. when you and your friends were looking for dead bodies uh in a sewer <laughs> yeah yeah this is how you spoke to each other <laughs> That's what and saying. i also i also quite like the score at times um but really for me that yeah that's about where it ends with this movie for me <laughs> again again i think i mean like a very very generic dumbed down experience it's fine there's there's enough laughs there's yep. enough uh especially like the eddie character I, you know, some of these performances from the kids are pretty good. I, I think, um, yeah, yeah, Mike, Georgie, Eddie, Bev are the standouts. I think those, you know, especially yeah. like Sophia Lillis, I think she's yeah, great. She's, she's great. She is fantastic. And that's part of the thing that bugged me too is I think the casting is so good that, like, why not just stick closer to what King wrote, which. I don't know. Again, uh, right. this is one of my things where I'm I'm struggling with the adaptation of it. Um, that just yeah, it's probably more my own issue than the films, but I just I can't yeah. separate it at this point. <laughs> yeah, for me, it, it just doesn't. In comparison to Stand by Me, in comparison to Shawshank Redemption, yeah, even some of the other ones, you know, every other one that we watched on this, yeah, this yeah. week, it just doesn't. It's not in the same league. You can't yeah. put it in the same category. It's just missing. You know, we we took time in every uh, previous movie to talk about something unique and special about it. Yeah. And I can't find that in this film. It's not that the individual parts of it are terrible. I just don't see anything really, like, unique or... um, Yeah, it's just... Or it's missing that, like, that excellence that some of these other films have, and this one just does not have it. It's just, yeah, I guess it is. It's soulless. That's just probably the best yeah. way to put it. So yeah. I give it an eight out of 10. Now that we've talked about it, I'd probably rate it a little bit lower than that, but I'm not going to 
nitpicks and pick nits here. So it's an eight out of 10 for me. It is my worst of the week for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm probably going to sound really harsh here. This is a five for me. I just think wow. it's extraordinarily average. I just think that, like you say, it's the kind of film that if it's on, like I'm not going to get angry about watching it except when I think about my love for the book. I think as a film on its own, if you're mm. just there to watch it and have a good time, it, it's fine and I think it does an okay job. But, yeah, for for me, I just, like I said, it's my own problem. I just can't separate it and I just think that it kills so many things that the original, like honestly, also, I know people rag on it these days and people still praise Tim Curry, but most people think it's pretty out of fashion. But I, I would watch the 1990 miniseries way before I thought about throwing this on. <laughs> so <laughs> for me, it is my worst of the week. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, it's time for our recap. Coming in dead last for me is it, 8 out of 10. Uh, followed at number four with The Shining, which I give an 8.7 out of 10. Coming in the middle of the pack is Carrie. I appreciated, you know, you heard everything I had to say. I waxed on poetic for uh, a million years. Uh, I give it a nine out of 10. It still can't beat Stand By Me, which is 9.5 out of 10, is number two for the week. And it sure as hell can't beat The Shawshank Redemption which is as good as your dad told you it was, <laughs> coming in at number one with a 9.75 out of 10. Billy, what is your recap? Yep, here's mine. So my worst of the week was It at 5 out of 10. Coming in at fourth is Carrie at 7 out of 10. The Shining, 7.5 out of 10. Stand By Me, one of my all-time favorites at 9 out of 10. And like you say, it's a bit of a dad film. It feels naff to praise this film <laughs> as much as I have, but I cannot fault it. Shawshank is best of the week at 10 out of 10. You lived up to all of the hype and all of the many, many downloads around the world that you get deservedly. I, I listen to your show. I think you do a hell of a job. Uh, you're, you got that soothing tone, that therapeutic tone, and uh, you can be a contrarian, but there's even when you are, you're just so soothing. The only place where I'm at odds with you is you say that you are a frequent toilet goer. Yes. Yes. <laughs> can, well, can you elaborate on what it means to be a frequent toilet goer? And let's we let's straighten this out before you get your plug. Okay. All right. So it is exceptionally rare that I will be able to sit through a movie without going to the toilet. <laughs> so the other the other night I saw Morbius, which is not a long film and not a good film, just quietly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I needed a bathroom break. <laughs> just, <laughs> I have a bladder the size of a walnut. It's just tiny. <laughs> so any movie that you see, no matter the length or runtime, you will go to the toilet. Oh yeah, while you're there. Yeah, and and I I try combat it. I go to the toilet before I walk in. I do all the right things. I just can't help it. <laughs> because one of the things I'm notorious for on here is having many rants about people who get up and move and <laughs> come in and out of the theater or on the cell phones or come in late yeah. or this, that, whatever, or bring in their, you know, very smelly sushi or whatever. Um, and you oh, I've also been known guys. to eat sushi in the cinema. So. <laughs> Warm, so, hot so. Australian sushi, the stuff that's baked. 
the sun, the sun of the South Pacific. And you walk in and you're <laughs> it, it, do, it, it has been known to happen where I haven't had to go to the bathroom. If a film is like insanely engrossing, I think Mother a couple of years ago was probably the first film where I remember not going to the bathroom during it because I just couldn't look away. <laughs> Well, despite you being a frequent toilet goer in the <laughs> cinemas, you have earned your plug, sir, and uh, your great listenership. You have a great show. Where can people find you out there on the interwebs? Well, thank you so much. Firstly, this was so much fun. I had so much fun doing this. This was awesome. Secondly, I should clarify, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a toilet goer in the cinema. I do walk outside <laughs> and find the bathroom first. <laughs> I'm just saying that Billy has been outed as a man who looks at movie theaters as public toilets. Public, public restrooms all over the place. Um <laughs> Look, you can you can find me anywhere that you can find podcasts. If you're listening to this, you can probably find me just by searching We Watched a Thing. Uh, you can get in touch with me at wewatchedathing.com or wewatchedathing at gmail.com. And I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at We Watched a Thing. But, I mean, before you do that, just go back and listen to Jason's entire catalog because, <laughs> you know, it's awesome. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, if you happen to follow B-Dizzle from We Watch the Thing and you're listening to Binge Movies for the first time, well, thank you for listening. And, yeah, you can find us in all of your favorite podcast places. We extend into the entire multiverse of podcast platforms. Uh, so we're all over the place. And uh, we also have a Patreon, patreon.com slash binge movies. Uh, this show would not be possible without our patrons. We love you. And uh, yeah, you can find us on Twitter at binge movies. Let us know that we should have talked about The Shining for seven and a half hours and only talked about Carrie for 10 minutes. And let us know that uh, we're, we are elder geriatric millennials yeah. who don't understand the genius that is 2017 <laughs> send your hate mail to at binge movies and, and until next time binge on binge on